0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy nalpa The mafia, or organized crime, is an institution like no other, infiltrating societies worldwide for the sake of power and respect. Their exploits can be dangerous, but they also provide titillating material that's used to entertain us in movies, TV shows, and best-selling books. Today we explore how organized crime has used certain tactics to gain influence. We'll talk with author James Cocaine. His new book, Hidden Power, The Strategic Logic of Organized Crime, shows that now more than ever the line has become blurred between criminal actors and governments. How does that impact us? Cocaine argues that without understanding the strategies of organized crime, we can never know for sure if our government is the one that's truly governing. That's a scary thought. Coming up, New England has its own history with the mafia. We'll talk with Tim White, investigative reporter in Providence, about the role the mafia has had in our region. Right now, Dr. James Cocaine joins us. He's head of the United Nations University office in New York, author of several books, including the one we're talking about today, Hidden Power. He joins us from NPR studios in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, James, welcome back to the show.
2: Terrific to be back. Thanks so much for having me, Lucy.
0: So, What motivated you to write this book?
2: Well, I could say my surname, Cocaine, um, <laughs> but then my my sister, who's a doctor and she's a doctor Cocaine in Australia, would give me a much harder time, so you can imagine what her life is like. Um, really, I, I was trained as a lawyer in Australia and spent a lot of time thinking about war crimes, actually. And the more time I spent working on war crimes in Africa, uh, advising the Australian government, going into Iraq, things like that, the more I began to question some of the basic... Uh, assumptions we make about the distinction between organized criminal activity and governmental activity. And that just got me intellectually curious and led me on a quest uh, into some musty archives, the result of which is, is the book Hidden Power.
0: You talk a lot about a strategy. Um, before we get into that, I'd love for you to, define, to uh, define for us, you know, what does it mean when we talk about a mafia state?
2: Yeah, mafia state is a a term that uh, a very influential author, Moises Naim, has been using for the last half a decade or so to describe uh, the way that some states are increasingly using not only the methods of organized crime, but actually the personnel and increasingly the, the strategies of organized criminal activity. So back in as early as 1993, actually, Boris Yeltsin, the former president of the Russian Federation, is on record as having said in a private conversation, we have we have become a mafia power on a world scale. He was talking about the way that the Russian mafia had infiltrated not only the system of government but also important social institutions in uh, Russian society following the uh, collapse of the Soviet government's uh, authority and the turn towards... Uh, a more liberal market democracy arrangement. But we see this kind of arrangement uh, happening elsewhere, not only in uh, in other former Soviet states, but also, for example, uh, in North Korea, where the government stands accused of participation in global counterfeiting, drug-running, and human trafficking activities. Uh, in some Middle Eastern states, we see non-governmental actors such as Hezbollah, who actually has a role in government, Combining local service provision uh, with offshore illicit activity, we see similar things going on in places as far flung as Afghanistan, or Colombia, or Mali in West Africa. But we also also should be careful not to assume that Western governments are not also some in some cases engaged in cooperation with uh, with criminal organisations and it's trying to understand when that cooperation gets to the heart of the state that was the intellectual uh, provocation that, that led me on this quest to write this book.
0: Was it dangerous for you to put so much time and effort into trying to learn you know, the inner workings of, of the strategies used in organized crime?
2: You know, to be honest, uh, not really, actually, because I was a little bit cowardly in that a lot of the work in the book is uh, based on archival work. Mm-hmm. Um, there are two reasons for that. One is safety, but the other, frankly, is that there are better records in governmental and mafia archives. Uh, it's very hard and time-consuming uh, to to engage with uh, with organized criminal groups uh, at the con- contemporary criminal groups on a day-to-day basis. And this was a book I wrote during my uh, my while doing a day job working for the United Nations, so I didn't have that opportunity. Um, but I would say actually there have been other moments, for example, when I was working uh, for governments that I have frankly felt that uh, I was in a riskier situation than when pursuing this this academic line of inquiry.
0: And we definitely want to talk further about the contemporary examples of, of organized crime in some of the nations you mentioned a little bit later. But you mentioned again these archives. So can we talk about this history of collaboration between uh, political and criminal actors, something that's been going on for some time? Take us through that history.
2: Yeah, it, it's really eye-opening, actually. It was very eye-opening for me. Um, five years ago in, in 2011, the, the White House put out its first ever strategy to combat transnational organized crime, and that includes an assertion that in some cases criminal networks threaten United States interests by forging alliances with corrupt elements of of foreign governments. What interested me in this uh, inquiry was the rumors that I'd heard, which frankly I was rather skeptical about, that there was a history of collaboration between US actors and the mafia, the mob. Um, Some of your listeners may have heard stories, for example, about collaboration between the mob and the U.S. Navy during World War II. Um, Others may have heard of uh, the alleged cooperation between those actors to kill Fidel Castro. I came to those rumors, frankly, with a very healthy dose of academic skepticism. But what I discovered through looking through the U.S. National Archives, British National Archives. Uh, some other state archives, judicial records and mafia records, was that actually where there's smoke, there's fire. And there were there is a long history of cooperation between uh, United States uh, agencies, both uh, military and intelligence, and the mob, uh, both to develop the governmental power of the United States here inside the United States and to project their combined power abroad, both during wartime and actually, as it turns out, during peacetime. Um, there's there's a, a long history of close cooperation between politicians and organized criminals in this country. I'm speaking to you from New York. Uh, the first chapter of the book looks at the history of cooperation between the Tammany uh, Society, which was the democratic outfit, that governed New York in the second half of the 19th century and uh, organized crime. Uh, That developed into a a close cooperation uh, in the 20th century between the Mafia and the US Navy during the Second World War. The United States government discovered that it needed access to the docks around Manhattan and Brooklyn, and it didn't have the authority to get the intelligence and the access that it needed. So it turned to the mafia uh, to help it develop that access and that intelligence. And the mafia actually not only helped it gain access to the docks, but helped it place intelligence assets uh, on the fishing fleets off, uh, off the east coast of the United States. And even, it turns out, through my research, helped the United States government catch four Nazi saboteurs that were landed in the Hamptons Uh, in the 1940s to try and conduct um, uh, sabotage operations in the United States. The historical record has always suggested that it was the FBI that caught those saboteurs, but when you look at the nature of the interactions and connections, it becomes pretty clear that they did that with quite a lot of help, Mm -hmm. and that help was from the mafia. That cooperation then developed into uh, a cooperation in Sicily, And the mafia used that relationship to infiltrate government in Sicily after World War II, and that formed the basis uh, for some of the close cooperation between authorities in Rome and the mafia in Sicily that we've heard about in the media for for many decades since.
0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy nall I'm speaking with James Cocaine, his new book, Hidden Power, The Strategic Logic of Organized Crime. So obviously there are benefits for uh, government uh, to collaborate in a way or form alliances with organized crime history shows that. Can you give us examples of when the U.S. government, we think of it as, um, you're mentioning like um, what people believe, like we think of it as a mafia approaching uh, the U.S. government for something. But in fact, the evidence shows that that's actually the U.S. government uh, approaching the mafia at times. Um, Let's look at what happened in Cuba with uh, Fidel Castro for once.
2: Yeah, that's a very interesting case and something I spent uh, I spend quite a few pages on in the book. Um, we've long heard rumours that there was cooperation between the, the CIA and the mafia in an attempt to kill Castro. You, Some of your listeners may know that the mafia was in Cuba very productively in the 1940s and 1950s in a sort of a joint venture with some of the ruling elite uh, under Batista, and that that joint venture was so deep that it not only involved uh, giving access to the mafia to run casinos, own casinos, uh, and of course all the other vice markets that are associated with casinos, particularly prostitution, drug trafficking, and so forth. Um, It actually also involved the Cuban state turning its own assets towards the growth of that economy. Uh, So for example, there was a, a development bank that was developed in Cuba in order to fund the building of the hotels and all the infrastructure that was associated with them um, in order to grow this economy and grow the profits for that, that were shared between the Cuban elite and the mafia elite. When Batista was, uh, was overthrown uh, by the Cuban Revolution and Castro came into power, Castro did not actually immediately throw out the mob. The mob's first effort was to try and negotiate some kind of detente with him. Um, But it became clear as he was pushed further and further or, or as he moved further and further to the left that that was not going to be a viable solution for either of them. So they moved offshore and actually went and developed other markets, particularly in the Bahamas. And the story has always been that it was sometime later, a couple of years later, that the CIA went to the mob and said... You still have contacts in Cuba? Could you help us with some of our covert activities? Well, the archival evidence that I uh, reveal in this book actually suggests very strongly, including uh, as a result of an internal CIA analysis, that that's not the story. The story is actually the other way around, that the mob did not sit on its hands for those two years, 1960, 61. It was actually doing two things. First of all, it was mounting its own transnational armed terrorist attacks, flying sorties from the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico, bombing civilian and commercial sites in Cuba in order to create disorder and incite a popular uprising against uh, against Castro, and at the same time was also developing quite sophisticated communication strategies. It funded and stood up governments in exile uh, in the United States made up of the very uh, Batistiano Uh, elites that had fled Cuba, and even hired a lobbying firm on K Street in Washington to promote the idea that these governments should be uh, reinserted, that there should be regime change in Cuba led by the US government and these government in exile inserted. And so it was actually these efforts that the CIA then decided to piggyback on. It was not the CIA that went to the mafia. It was the mafia that laid the groundwork and actually It appears approached very gently the CIA and enlisted their support. Now, that's very important because it suggests to us that actually some organized criminal groups can be actors on the international stage. Uh, And it's not, we shouldn't assume that when governments work with organized criminal groups, governments will necessarily have the upper hand or that they will be calling the strategic shots. That introduces a level of complexity and uncertainty in the way we think about international affairs that has very obvious ramifications Mm -hmm. for our contemporary environment when you think about some of the headlines about Mm -hmm. cyber uh, operations and hacking and uh, influence of criminal groups that we've been reading about in in recent days. But even at the time, it had potentially explosive results. Uh, For example, during the Bay of Pigs crisis Mm -hmm. and the Cuban Missile Crisis, having the mafia involved in those very, very tense periods was a very volatile element that is really has been unaccounted for.
0: Mm. And before we head to break, maybe explain to our listeners what you're talking about in terms of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So when there were negotiations happening between uh, President Kennedy um, and the Soviets, the the mafia was coming in to try again to assassinate.
2: That's exactly right. So you have this covert uh, facility that has been developed in cooperation with the uh, mafia by the CIA. You have the Kennedys in their famous uh, few days, trying to sort out, to to draw the uh, the world back from the brink of nuclear war, and off goes the covert act, uh, goes the covert facility on its own without instructions heading towards Cuba in one last effort to assassinate Castro. Fortunately, we know that the White House found out about this, uh, countermanded the order, interceded. But if they had not, uh, who knows what would have happened.
0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're considering the role of organized crime in societies worldwide. Author James Cocaine is talking to us about his new book, Hidden Power, The Strategic log- Logic of Organized Crime. Now, coming up after the break, we'll consider several countries today where governments and the criminal underworld work hand in hand. Hmm, Russia maybe? Email where we live at WMPR.org. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. James Cocaine joins us today. He's the author of Hidden Power, The Strategic Logic of Organized Crime. In it, Cocaine explores the strategies criminal groups are using, which has blurred the separation between them and governments. Uh, James, if we could talk a little bit more about some modern-day examples. You mentioned uh, Russia earlier um, under Yeltsin. Um, When we we think about uh, Putin's regime, are there any ways to tell if there's a separation between government and organized crime in that particular country?
2: Well, I should start out by saying that I'm not a Russia expert, but I certainly uh, find it a fascinating case, as does, I guess, you know, all of the public that is increasingly hearing about these things. Um, it's, there's pretty well-established evidence that the result of the collapse of Soviet authority in the late 1980s, early 1990s, was uh, the rise of local armed groups connected with former apparatchiks, who took, seized control not only of state assets, but increasingly of important parts of the um, social life and economy of Russia. So uh, banking institutions and other financial institutions, uh, civic organizations, media organizations, and that through the course of the 1990s, these different actors, some of them we know as oligarchs, but there are many others who frankly don't have that status, uh, engaged in a competition, in a kind of a market for government inside Russia to develop power. Um, And this is is one of the challenges analytically, that historically we have assumed that there is a hard and fast distinction between politics, uh, market activity, business, and crime. But often when we look around the world today, we don't see those hard and fast distinctions holding. In fact, we see a lot more blurring. Um, not only in places like Russia, but in in many places around the world today. Uh, It can be very difficult, actually, to distinguish between these actors. Jim Woolsey, the former director of the CIA, who we're hearing a bit about in the news these days, um, was testifying before Congress back in 1999, and he had a great little story that he shared, uh, which is probably worth sharing with your listeners. He said that if you're in a restaurant on the banks of uh, Lake Geneva and you're approached by an articulate English-speaking Russian in, uh, in a $3,000 suit and a pair of Gucci loafers and he tells you that he's an executive of a Russian trading company and he wants to talk to you about a joint venture, then there are four possibilities. The first is that that's exactly what he is. The second is that he's actually a Russian intelligence officer working under commercial cover. The third is that he's a member of an organized crime group, but the most interesting possibility, said Woolsey back in ninety nine is that he's actually all three of those things and all three of those institutions are perfectly happy with that arrangement. We see that kind of penetration of uh, interpenetration of government, business and organised crime increasingly around the world.
0: Let me ask: you know, if we know that particular countries, you know, the lines have been blurred, and we're not quite sure if it's the leader or you know, leading the, the organized crimes actions or vice versa, you know, how precarious that is for um, diplomacy when you have countries that do need to negotiate at times with countries who may be considered mafia states, you know, not real, not not being able to know who is really pulling the strings, so to speak.
2: I think it is precarious. Um, I, I want to emphasise that in some ways this is not new. A lot of the book, as we were talking about before the break, is really looking at the history of collaboration between these different actors. But what we're seeing now is an acceleration of the, um, the speed with which these connections form and the, the, their ability to reach across international borders, in part because of the ease of access to global banking, Uh, global communications and global trade flows. So what that means is that even local armed groups have the ability to connect into uh, transnational organised crime and that that can have very uh, surprising and destabilising effects in unexpected places. Look, for example, at the real estate market in New York. Um, There's increasing evidence that the rising real estate prices in New York are partly driven by the flow of money of very questionable background from all around the world into the markets here, um, partly as a money laundering exercise, let's be frank, and partly because it's actually a productive place to put your money, whether the money is clean or dirty in the first place. Mm -hmm. So because we have such a globalized world, uh, this isn't just a question now of being concerned about the bona fides of a foreign diplomat it's increasingly about the way the entire global economy works uh, that we are seeing uh, actors who develop wealth and influence as the on the basis of organized criminal activity. we're seeing them benefit from the globalized economy and political system in a way that people who play by the rules maybe aren't benefiting and that's causing a fundamental uh, questioning of the legitimacy of the whole system, I think it's certainly related to the political backlash we're seeing in uh, Western Europe and the United States to the project of globalization as we've known it. Mm -hmm. Many people think that globalization is benefiting the corrupt and the crooked, and it's not benefiting uh, the average Joe or Jill on the street. And that's really cutting at the the foundations of trust in our liberal democratic order around the world. Mm
0: Let's talk about another example before we take a call. Um, you know, when we look at ISIS and their actions um, in the Middle East, specifically um, in Syria um in terms of you know how they've been able to um, dominate, can we talk a little bit about some of the strategy they use that may be considered, um I guess a, when you when you've researched this, like strategies that other organized crime has used in the past?
2: Yeah, ISIS is a very interesting case because they are they control territory, so that gives them the ability not just to tap into financial flows but to develop governmental power over a whole territory, which is indeed why they call themselves Islamic State. Um, But that doesn't mean that they are not still participating in transnational organized criminal activity. In fact, there's very, very strong evidence that they're involved in a number of smuggling activities. Of course, oil but also antiquities, huge looting of the ancient uh, archaeological sites that they now control. Uh, And perhaps most disturbingly, I think, um, there's a wholesale move by ISIS to normalise human trafficking and slavery um, in a way that we really haven't seen uh, for probably a century. Um, They're not only engaging in that activity covertly, they are internally to their own supporters, their own um, the members of ISIS, the soldiers, uh, the, the citizens under their control, they have issued not just formal edicts but actually how-to manuals on uh, trafficking in slaves. And that's a fundamental challenge to uh, the notion that we have in the international community that individual human beings cannot be bought and sold by other human beings. That we, We've lived by that rule now for at least a century and a half uh, and we've come very close to enforcing it worldwide. But unfortunately, groups like ISIS that are challenging that norm are really fundamentally challenging um, are at the basis of, of uh, our approach to regulating life around the world.
0: I wanted to take a couple of calls now. Uh, Lou's calling from Willamantic, Lou, you're on the show.
2: Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, first of all,
1: I'd like to thank you, Mr. Cocaine, for adding to this uh, library this most interesting subject. I hope my questions are not too far afield, but I'd like to know whether or not in your research you found any evidence uh, relating to whether or not Jagger Hoover actually knew of this activity between the CIA and, uh, and uh, the mob, and whether or not uh, uh, he did anything about it or just completely ignored it as he, uh, you know, on record saying that uh, they didn't exist.
2: Thank you, Lou, for Great your question. question. Lou. Yeah. Terrific question, Lou. He sure did. Hoover knew all about it. We have pretty strong documentary evidence of that. Um, in fact, he briefed Bobby Kennedy probably on Bobby Kennedy's first day in office. Why? Because Bobby Kennedy had been the legal counsel for a Senate committee that his brother was actually a member of um, back when he was a senator looking into the collaboration between um, organized labor and the mob. And in fact, Bobby Kennedy uh, had literally written the book. He wrote a book about that experience, and he'd made clear that if he was made attorney general, one of his number one priorities would be to go after the mob and their increasing power in in the labor market in the United States. So Hoover, who had this information, It appears briefed Bobby Kennedy on the first day saying, Mr. Kennedy, you may want to go after the mob, but you should just be aware that actually the CIA is cooperating with them. Um, So at that point, Kennedy was in a very, very difficult position and had to sit on that information. And there's a whole chapter in the book that looks at what he and his brother did with that information and did not do. Um, One of the very, very interesting things is that because both Kennedy brothers had been on that committee, they knew exactly how uh, the mob organized plausible deniability internally. And when you look at the structure of the way the CIA engaged in the development of covert assassination uh, capabilities under the Kennedy administration, there are really remarkable similarities between the way they organized information flow within the CIA and within the mob. Now, the question arises, it's not a question we can answer, were they learning from and copying the mob or is it just that the nature of the two activities, covert operations by state intelligence agencies and covert operations by non-state criminal organisations are so similar that they converge in the form they take? Very difficult to answer that, we probably never know, Uh, but it really raises very interesting questions about Uh, The very close relationship between uh, these different actors at the heart of government at that time
0: This is where we live. We're talking with James cocaine author of hidden power the strategic logic of organized crime Another caller on the line with a question Derek's calling from Windsor Derek you're on the show Yeah, Lucy morning. Uh, The gentleman actually made the point that I wanted was to make and he is so correct because what happened when America helped these countries? The money doesn't filter down to the everyday suffering people. The money is kind of circulated between the government and the gang. And I think America cannot police the whole world, I, I, that I know. But if they're going to support these countries with money, hard, hard tax-paying dollars, like people like myself, I think the government has a... Um, as, as You know, as a right to set up a certain committee or whatever they want to call it, to make sure they monitor these points that they send to these countries. And I can tell you, Jamaica, where I'm from, is one of those countries. I'm not scared to talk. You know, I'm just telling you what I know. And this is a fact. All right, Derek, thank you for your comment. Let's talk about Jamaica, uh, James Cocaine and, and the organized crime uh, in there, in that country.
2: Yeah, Jamaica's a beautiful country. Derek, thanks for your call. I'm proud to say I was married in Jamaica uh, several years ago, so it's a a country with a a special place in my heart. Um, Jamaica has struggled with organized crime ever since its independence, and in some ways arguably before. Uh, In particular, because of the, the, the willingness of the political parties in Jamaica to cultivate close ties with local armed groups um, in order to shore up electoral bases in the garrisons, in the cities and in different parts of the rural uh, communities in Jamaica from early on. Um, what they found was precisely what we've talking what we've been talking about that although at the outset the government had the upper hand in that strategic alliance, uh, during the 70s and 80s the, uh, the posses, as they're known, that control those urban enclaves, the garrisons found that by tapping into transnational flows of drugs and arms, and in particular by dominating the cocaine retail market here in the northeast of the United States, they could develop wealth and influence that allowed them to reverse that dominance and become much stronger partners in the, uh, in the alliance that they had with political parties in, uh, in, in uh, Jamaican politics. It's only recently with the extradition of Christopher Koch uh, by the Jamaican government uh, to the United States, a very controversial decision in itself, that we've started to see political parties uh, overtly moving against uh, that, those posses and beginning to wind back some of those relationships. But as your caller, Derek, uh, made clear, you know those ties run very deep and it's going to take a long time and require a lot of support from foreign partners and a lot of bravery by the Jamaican people themselves uh, to unravel those ties and to allow Jamaica to get on the, uh, the path of good governance and sustainable development that it uh, so thoroughly deserves. But We see very encouraging signs there and, uh, and I ho- I'm very hopeful for the future.
0: You know, we can't um, go without talking about uh, the cartels in Mexico and what has been able to emerge over the last uh, several years. Um, you had written an article uh, talking about how these cartels and others in Central America are using social media um, to not only help with recruiting, but to market themselves. Can we talk a little bit about that?
2: Sure. You know, One of the things that I came to terms with writing this book was that if you want to defeat organized crime, it's a battle that you really have to win in people's hearts and minds because it's the, the normative power, the authority that those criminal groups hold over their members and local populations that gives them their power ultimately. In the Sicilian mafia, for example, think of the famous concept of a merta, the idea that you stay silent, you keep your secrets for the mafia You don't reveal them to the state. That's about people owing their allegiance first and foremost to those criminal groups, not to others. So criminal groups, particularly in Mexico, have realized that these days the way to communicate with people is through social media. And that means that if you want to intimidate or cultivate people, you have to do it through social media. We see in Mexico deliberate targeting of uh, citizen journalists and professional journalists by the mafia to silence, uh, by, the, by the cartels to silence them when they're reporting on the activities of the cartels. But we also see positive engagement with social media, the use of social media to cultivate a whole narco cultura, as it's known, narco culture, um, narco ballads, the use of uh, symbols of death uh, adapted from traditional Mexican culture. Um, there's a whole cultural system that the, cult, that the cartels have helped develop in Mexico, which normalizes uh, participation in and support for cartel activity as the way to live, as a lifestyle, as a way to succeed, to develop wealth and influence, uh, and ultimately a form of happiness. It's a very, very morbid uh, way of living because it leads ultimately to violence and uh, massive discrimination against women and really uh, human rights abusing outcomes. So we have to get much smarter, we as governments, we as society, in pushing back against the normalization of mafia culture. It's not easy. Um, As you said in your intro to the program, Lucy, these stories are titillating. they stimulate us. They get us excited because of, they represent transgression of, of social norms. Um, if you look at what's on TV day to day, it's full of stories um, about organized crime and its uh, activities. Uh, it's, we have to think very carefully about the, the influence that has on societies and culture around us.
0: So you've written this book. You've done a lot of research. I mean, where do we go from here in terms of the global efforts to uh, combat uh, organized crime, which has uh, you know, gotten stronger over the last two decades?
2: Well, what we're learning, I think, is that this is partly a battle for law enforcement actors, but it has to be a much bigger social effort than that. Uh, we need people like Derek, who just called in to speak up, and, and to talk about the need to root out corruption from inside their own governments, uh, to contribute to a much more positive vision of democracy where people play by the rules and of the economy where people play by the rules. But ultimately that's up to all of us. You know, That's not something that states singly or working together through the United Nations can achieve on their own because it's about the way that the culture, the society, and the economy are, uh, are functioning. In Sicily, for example, there's an amazing effort going on now uh, to push back against the influence of the mafia. If you go to a restaurant in Sicily, you may notice as you go in a little orange X with the words adio pizzo, which means farewell to the bribe. That's an indication that that restaurant is no longer going to pay the extortion money that is required by the mafia. So it's essentially a way for consumers to boycott uh, those restaurants or other retail organizations that are paying money to the mafia because they won't have that sticker on their window. It's that kind of citizen-led initiative I think that is ultimately the future here. But it requires real courage and it requires collaboration uh, in our local communities and then working up to the national and international level, sometimes we have to lead our politicians if we want the results we're looking for.
0: And as you say as you say in your book to not no longer just studying crime without the connection between uh, politics and vice versa that, that those lines have been blurred and and people have to start to you know accept that um, these strategies need to be looked at closer. That's right. I've been speaking with James Cocaine, author of Hidden Power, The Strategic Logic of Organized Crime. He also leads the United Nations University office in New York. He joined us today from NPR studios in Midtown Manhattan. James, thanks for talking with us again.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Lucy. Real pleasure.
0: Coming up next, a reporter details the Mafia's past passed in New England. What does it look like today? We'll hear from him after the break. Email where we live at WNPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. this is Where We Live, I'm Lucy nall We know many of you tune in to Where We Live on your car radio or stream us live at WMPR.org. You can also subscribe to Where We Live on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any podcast app. Now, today we've been talking about organized crime globally. What was the role of the mafia in New England? We're joined now by Tim White, an investigative reporter for WPRI-TV in Providence, Rhode Island, also co-author of the book, The Last Good Heist. Tim, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Lucy. It's my pleasure.
0: How did you get interested in researching the mob here in New England?
1: Uh, well, it is uh, part of my beat. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, organized crime, public corruption, uh, government waste is part of my beat in the investigative unit here, but uh, my interest stretches back a lot earlier. I'm the son of a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, reporter. My late father also reported on organized crime. And uh, so I, I grew up. Uh, with those stories uh, as uh, as a young man and I, I like to joke that most kids got the story of Casey at bat and my bedtime story was Casey hit with the bat so <laughs> I was uh, I was interested early on and sort of just uh, filled some big shoes I suppose
0: so let's talk about some of the infamous families in New England um, sure. starting with the if I say this correctly the Patriarca crime family you
1: nailed it Great.
0: So, tell us about Raymond.
1: Well, Raymond uh, Ellis Patriarca is the patriarch of the New England crime family. In fact, uh, we still call it the Patriarca crime family. He died in 1984, but his name lives on, and I think that's a, uh, you know, I suppose a dark testament to uh, his power and um, the the way he had built the organized crime family, La Cosa Nostra, in in New England. He was. Uh, uh, an, an extremely powerful man at a time when organized crime truly operated like a secondary government uh in New England and um Patriarca you know he how he got into it um as a as a young man he 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 actually testified before uh, a senate committee in in 1956 of which John F Kennedy was on this committee it was called the McClellan committee and and uh, he was asked um, by Robert Kennedy, who was the uh, counsel on 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 the committee, um, why he got into he got into some trouble here and there. Uh, though Patrick had denied the existence of organized crime, um, and he he said what a lot of uh, you know what you see a lot of made members of organized crime say. It was you know he lost his father at the age of 16, and I believe the quote was, "Why do a lot of young fellows do a lot of things when they haven't a father?" and and we see that storyline consistently um when it when it comes to to Lacosa Nostra and it's sort of a a snowball effect um you know these these a lot of these folks look there's a vacuum in their life um and they look for a family and they find one uh in Lacosa Nostra which translates uh, translates to this thing of ours or our thing um and so it fills that void but You know, what happens is these bad guys do bad things. They go away to prison, and their kids don't have a father either, and so it it can be a a vicious cycle.
0: So he collaborated with New York's crime families, um, but when his, I guess, reign was over, was his son, did he have a son, was he as effective?
1: Uh Raymond Junior Patriaka did take over the reins um after uh after his father's death in, in nineteen eighty four and um his reign led to one of the most embarrassing moments in organized crime nationally and that was in nineteen eighty nine the FBI uh, got word that uh, the Junior Patriarch was going to be holding a um, swearing-in ceremony up, up in a suburb of, of Boston called Medford, Massachusetts, and they planted a bunch of microphones in there, and uh, they were able to capture this swearing-in ceremony uh, on tape, and that has been used Ever since, as proof of the existence of of the FBI, and it was a real embarrassment um for Lacosa Nostra and particularly junior patriarchs. so no, I, I think the short answer is he he was not as effective
0: and and how does a collaboration work if if you're a crime family in Providence and you're you know you're trying to collaborate with the New York crime families, you know how did Providence and Boston become the hubs here? Well, this
1: is really I think where uh, you know. Raymond Patriarca this helped build the build the empire that that he um uh, he created here in New England because he was able to gain the trust of of the five all five families I would say in New York but particularly the Genovese crime family that the Patriarcas and the Genovese family in New York they have strong ties there um the families in New York respected Patriarca they would call on him to settle disputes uh in New York uh, according to investigators, and uh, you know, Patriarcha would send down his favorite pet, you know, hitmen for for jobs that they needed uh... to be done down there. And I think w- the effect of that, Lucy, was that um, you know, the the five families in New York they they have their thumbprints in certain sections of New England. They control parts of Connecticut, Western Massachusetts, particularly. But outside of that, the Patriarcha crime family controls all of New England, Boston, Providence and everywhere in between. If he hadn't built that relationship, uh, and this is speculation, of course, but if he hadn't built that relationship with the New York crime families, um, that probably wouldn't be the case. And again, I think that tells you why we still call it the Patriarcha crime family. There have been many bosses since uh, he passed away and his son is no longer, uh, even though he's alive, he's no longer at the helm. We've had different bosses here and there with different last names but we still call it the patriarchal <laughs> crime family and I think that's a big part part of why.
0: I'm speaking with Tim White, investigative reporter for WPRI TV in Providence, Ro- Rhode Island, co-author of The Last Good Heist. Let's talk about that heist that you that centers in your book. This is something that happened in 1975.
1: Right. Uh 40 years ago. It's one of the largest heists in US history. We and a lot of people don't know about it. Uh, and it happened in our own backyard here in New England. Um it was a it, it was in a First Storage Building but they didn't steal furs. Um, And by the way, this building still exists. It's a very Rhode Island thing. It's a place you go to (laughs) store your fur coats in the summer. Um, But in the heart of this fortress of a building, it used to be an Armenian church that its steeple was wiped out in 1938, so it's a big structure, uh, was a secret vault of about 150 large safe deposit boxes where um, members of organized crime and their associates hid their ill-gotten gains. very important. It wasn't regulated, right? Because mm-hmm. mobsters don't want to uh, get the draw the ire of the IRS. You make any deposit above ten thousand dollars, it has to be reported to the government. Here was a safe place for them to hide their stuff, and it was in many ways a, a brilliant robbery because uh, you're not going to have bad guys call the cops and say, "Hey, you know all that stuff I stole? Well, it got stolen from me." Uh, we estimate the take to be about thirty-two million dollars in cash. Uh, silver bars high end jewelry, loose gemstones it was a, a huge haul bigger than the robbers ever thought uh, would be taken that day. but I mean, think about it, stealing from the mob is a death wish right um, why Why would you ever do that? and as it turns out, and what we talk about in the book is because uh Patriaca, the boss at the time, gave the okay to rob from his own men, and the short answer is to why he would do that was um, he spent some time at a federal prison in Atlanta um, for uh, ordering a murder. And while he was there, he felt his his own soldiers weren't paying their dues. If you think of organized crime as a pyramid scheme and everything is paid up, mm-hmm. uh, he wasn't get, getting what he thought was owed to him. So he wanted to send a message. And of course, he's greedy um, and wanted the money. So he okayed uh, this robbery to happen. But Bad things happen after you rob from the mob, and we uh, mm-hmm. detail that in the book.
0: We only have about four minutes left, but I wanted to ask you about, you know, what the mafia looks like today in New England in 2017. Is it still a dominating force, and if not, you know, what are some of the reasons why?
1: Yeah, no, it it's not. It's a shell of what it uh, used to be. As I said at the beginning of our conversation, uh, it used to operate as a secondary government. It certainly. Uh, doesn't uh, do that anymore um and really the main reason is because government um the legitimate government um legalized a lot of their business model right uh you know they used to have to go to the uh, the illegal operation to play the numbers game uh the government created the lottery that cut into their proceeds um you'd have to go to your your bookmaker to bet on the uh the the Steelers and Patriots game uh, well, why would you do that? when well, You can go to DraftKings or FanDuel. Um, there are bookmaker bookmaking operations as well, uh, and there's better access to credit. Uh, you know, you don't need loan sharks, and there are 250% APR as much anymore when you have uh, more access to money uh, now than you did then. But um, the, you know, it still exists um, in the power structure, which ping-pongs between Providence and Boston, according to. Uh, agents and investigators I talk to is in Boston right now uh they 're involved in the narcotics trade, mm-hmm. but they rely more on associates than made members. There are fewer and fewer made members of organized crime in New England, but uh they are still operating and uh work in prostitution narcotics and uh, illegal uh, bookmaking is probably the big threads of their money.
0: And when you look at law enforcement today, it's a bigger priority global terrorism versus uh, domestic organized crime? For sure. But
1: I would note in New England, um, they when it comes to organized crime, as you rightly point out, obviously terrorism is the number one priority for the FBI specifically. But they um, in organized crime, they do what's called threat assessments for different regions of the country. Some areas, you know, the Latin Kings might be the number one threat assessment for organized crime. An important note: New England, uh, La Cosa Nostra is still what they de- deem as the number one threat assessment for organized crime uh, in this region.
0: Well, you mentioned narcotics. when We think about the the cartels that bring in, um, you know, the drugs that are, you know, often uh, moved up 95. You know, how do they collaborate with uh, criminals in this region?
1: Well, one of the myths, I think, that is out there is that Lacosa Nostra is not involved in narcotics. It's an outright lie and one that the, the movie The Godfather, I think, perpetuated. And uh, if anyone says that to you or your listeners, uh, you should absolutely push back at that. Any way that money can be made, they're going to have their hand in it. And I want to agree with something your previous guest said is sort of this, um, you know, uh, there's this, Image of organized crime portrayed by primarily Hollywood—you know, The Sopranos and Godfather's and other movies—that make it very sexy, if you will, and, a, and appealing, and glamorizes it. It's not that, and, and, and that's why I think responsible journalism on uh, reporting on organized crime should show just how seedy and awful uh, organized crime is, and how it erodes our quality of life, uh, where you know where you live. In short organized crime held New England back mm-hmm. uh, certainly Rhode Island we feel it more it, it's smaller the cost of business went up um, you know there was corrupt judges cops all of that uh, and certainly as you point out narcotics were involved and, and that's why I think it is so important to make sure you do mm-hmm. accurate and important reporting on on, on this topic
0: Thank you, Tim White, investigative reporter for WPRI-TV in Providence, Rhode Island, co-author of the book, The Last Good Heist. It sounds fascinating. I'm going to go pick it up. Thanks so much for your time, Tim.
1: Okay, Lucy. Thank you.
0: This is Where We Live Again, produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. I'm Lucy Nalthothanchel, and thanks for listening.